One of the world's oldest Christian communities is under threat, but few are talking about it. Bishop Mikhail Muradian and former Ambassador for Religious Freedom Sam Brownback are here to tell us what's happening to the people of Armenia. Later, encores of my exclusive interviews with star of the surprise box office hit Sound of Freedom, actor Jim Caviezel, and the man about whom Sound of Freedom is based, Tim Ballard. The World Over begins right now. Now, Raymond Arroyo. A warm welcome to all of you joining us in the United States and the world over. If you'd like to comment on tonight's show, send me a tweet. I'm at Raymond Arroyo. Let's get right to it. In 301 A.D., Armenia became the first country to establish Christianity as its official religion. And according to tradition, Christianity was brought to Armenia by the apostles Bartholomew and Thaddeus making it one of the oldest Christian communities in the world. Geographically, it's landlocked between Turkey, Iran, Georgia, and Azerbaijan. Throughout their history, the Armenian people have been subject to persecution, most notably during the Armenian genocide at the hands of the Ottoman Turks during World War I. Since December of last year, Azerbaijan has blockaded Artsakh, an Armenian republic, attempting to drive the people out of their homeland. How is this blockade affecting the Armenian people? And what is Azerbaijan ultimately trying to achieve? Joining me now from Armenia is Bishop Mikhail Muradian. He is the Armenian Catholic Eparch of the United States and Canada. Your Excellency, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. Uh, Tell me how... Christianity forms the fabric of Armenia. As I mentioned in the introduction, this is one of the oldest Christian communities on the planet. As you mentioned, Armenia accepted Christianity in 301 after the predication of St. Gregory the Illuminator to King Tirtad of Armenia. And the king, after being baptized, declared Christianity as the religion of the state. And Armenia was the first state to accept Christianity as the state religion. 11 years before the Edict of Milan, which was Mm. in 112. Uh, And one of our historians, Yerishe, who lived in the fifth century, to explain how Armenians have accepted Christianity, is saying that we didn't accept Christianity as our clothes, that when it is dirty, we can change it. Mm-hmm. But we accepted it as our skin, which is undetachable from our uh, body. The, the consequence of this choice of the Armenians was during the century, actually 1,700 years, that we were persecuted all along the centuries because of our, of our Christian faith. Mm-hmm. Till, as you mentioned, the biggest genocide that we lived as Armenians yes. in 1915 by the Ottoman Empire. Mm. And that was the consequence that Armenians were scattered all over the world. Bishop Muradian, uh, tell us about this blockade by Azerbaijan with the help of Turkey. This is affecting over 100,000 Armenians today, many of them children. Can you tell us about the condition of the community, the Christian community now, 
uh, and, and given that this has been going on for eight months now, how bad is it and why aren't we hearing more about it? Unfortunately, this is a war that is completely forgotten from all the news agencies. Mm. We don't hear about it in the news in the United States. Very rarely we speak about it. And the story began before the Soviet Union. Actually, the country of Azerbaijan didn't exist till 1921. It was created during the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. Union. And during the regime of Stalin, who was a dictator, as we know, he cut off this region of Armenia, the eastern, southern part of Armenia, and put it on the map of Azerbaijan. Hmm. and gave it uh, an internal independent status. When the Soviet Union collapsed in 91, uh, this enclave of Armenia declared its, its independence from the Soviet Union hmm. and wanted to reunite it with Armenia. But unfortunately, the Azerbaijans from that day till now are continuing to attack Armenians, uh, persecute them, forced them to leave their house. And in 2020, during the COVID period, Turkey and Azerbaijan together attacked the region of Artsakh, blockaded it, and more than 150,000 people were forced to leave their homes. And nowadays, there are only 120,000 Armenians living in the region of Nagorno-Karabakh. The actual blockade began on December 12, 2022, and uh, it was blockading the corridor of Lachin, which is the unique road that links Armenia to Artsakh. First, it was under the excuse that it is for ecological things because there was mining over there. Mm -hmm. It changed in April 23 uh, to a military blockade and just a week ago july 11 azerbaijan announced that it would deny the international red cross even to access to Artsakh to this corridor hmm. the consequence is that it's been already eight months that there is no electricity in this region no water and no gas. Bishop, in your estimation, is this a purely tactical operation on the part of Azerbaijan? Or, or do you see this as an attempt to eradicate the Christian presence there? It's much more to eradicate the Christian presence. Uh, for me, it's a continuation of the genocide that we had in the 20th century. To take into consideration that the region of Nakhichevan, which was, which is part of Azerbaijan now, there were 300,000 Armenians living over there. But during the Soviet regime, they forced them to leave, and now there is no Armenians living over there. Hmm. Among these 120,000 that are living this blockade in Artsakh, there is 30,000 children. Hmm. And these children, they don't have the possibility to go to school. They are not nourished as they should. And one of the mothers who could send a video to the news in Armenia, she was telling that when the children hear a loud clap of thunder, they stare at the 
adults puzzled because they are expecting to tell them we're going down in in the basement because mm. there is bombing. So the life is very threatened and I am sure that the aim of the president of Azerbaijan, Aliyev, is to completely eradicate the presence of the Christian Armenians in this region, a region where Armenians were living long before the existence of Azerbaijan. Imagine we have over there churches and monasteries built from the 4th to 5th century. Not only ancient monasteries, historic monuments. Um, What is happening to those? Those are really under attack as well. Unfortunately, it is tradition in the Turkish communities. They did it in historical Armenia back in Turkey, and they are transforming the churches into Mm. mosques, or they destroy the churches, and they use the stones of the churches to build other things. Even they are taking off from the Armenian monuments all the Armenian inscriptions so that they cancel any evidence of the historical presence of Armenians Mm -hmm. over there. As far back as 1920, under the administration of President Woodrow Wilson, the Armenian map has changed numerous times. Azerbaijan was only created as a nation in 1921. How have those changing national boundaries brought us to the situation that we're in today? Unfortunately, geopolitically, Armenia is surrounded from three countries that are not Christian. Hmm. In the east, you have Azerbaijan. In the west, you have Turkey. And in the south, you have Iran. Uh And uh, there is a blockade on Armenia. And the unique way to come to Armenia is by airplane. There is no land way to come to Armenia from Europe or from the United States. Um, the map of Armenia that was designed by President uh, Woodrow in 1920-21, Armenia's land was 160,000 kilometers square. Huh. And in one century, this this decreased, decreased after the attacks of the Azeris and the Turkey, Turks right. on Armenia. Now, Armenia is only 29,000 kilometers square, which means five times less than its original historical size. And the misfortune is that these persecution, these attacks are continuing. And people here in Armenia are afraid that uh, Azerbaijan and Turkey will not hesitate to not only take over Nagorno-Karabakh, but also attack the territory of Armenia. Hmm. The Armenian genocide during World War I is still understandably uh, a painful history in the region. Is this something similar to what we're seeing now? Do you fear that this could become another genocide? If we don't stand up as international community and we don't speak about this, we don't react to what Aliyev, the president of Azerbaijan, is doing, it will end with a genocide. Aliyev was very very clear, telling the Armenians that are living in Nagorno-Karabakh, the road is open for you, you can go out, but don't think to about coming back. 
There was a war two years ago in 2020. Azerbaijan and Turkey attacked Armenia and Artsakh. And the consequence of that war was that 6,000 Armenian young men were killed during the uh, the war, 44 mm. days war that lasted from September, October 2020. And these 6,000 young men were between the age of 19, 20, and 21. Mm. That's, that's genocide because you're killing the future of a nation. Bishop Moradian, uh, before I let you go, uh, President Biden officially recognized the Armenian genocide in 2021 upon taking office. What does Armenia need from the United States at this point to stop what amounts to, at the very least, forced migration? These Armenian Christians do not want to leave, correct? It's not enough to recognize the Armenian genocide. We have to take formal steps against the Azeri regime, which is a dictatorial regime, perhaps as we are doing with other dictatorship where the United States is putting international sanctions on them. Why don't put international sanctions on Azerbaijan till they cease this blockade on Nagorno-Karabakh? Mm. It's not enough to say to, to the Armenians that, okay, we recognize your genocide, but not doing anything to prevent another genocide is worse than that. Mm. Your Excellency, how would you like people to help? Is there a place for them to go? How can they assist uh, our brothers and sisters suffering in this, uh, really, the cradle of Christianity in many ways? First of all, it is through our eparchy mm-hmm. or work the, with the Philos project. They have a website, which is www.philosproject.org backslash Armenia. Your Excellency, we will leave it there for now. I thank you for joining us and uh, keeping us appraised of what's happening with uh, the Armenian Christian community. And thank you for your important work. Thank you for this opportunity. and God bless you all. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you. I want to go now to former Ambassador for International Religious Freedom, Sam Brownback, for his perspective on the politics of this conflict and its implications for U.S. foreign policy. Mr. Ambassador, thank you for being here. You had the opportunity last month to travel to Armenia uh, in June with the Philos Project. That's an advocacy group we just mentioned for Middle East Christians. You met with the Armenian president. What was the situation on the ground as you saw it? I think the situation on the ground is pretty dire for the Christians in Nagorno-Karabakh. Mm-hmm. For Armenia writ large, I think they're doing really pretty well, although they are threatened by Azerbaijan. But for the Christians in Nagorno-Karabakh that are surrounded by Azerbaijan, which is a client state of Turkey, they're being strangled and they're they're really being forced out of that part of the world. And they're going to be absorbed in Europe or the rest of Armenia or the United States. And we're going to see the replay of this situation that happens throughout the Middle East, where you get an ancient Christian community that just gets run out of Dodge and made to go to someplace else, and it shouldn't be allowed to happen in this situation. Mm. Now, you have called Azerbaijan's blockade of that Karabakh region religious cleansing. 
Okay. Humanitarian aid to the region, uh, as we noted earlier, is being blocked. Gas and electricity and other utilities have been severely curtailed. What does the U.S. need to do to stop this mass exodus of, again, another Christian population from their ancient homeland? We need to enforce the 907 sanctions. We should not be sending weaponry to Azerbaijan. It can't be used. It's not supposed to be used. We should enforce the Humanitarian Corridor Act, which requires these humanitarian corridors to stay open. We're not enforcing that as well. And we should say to Turkey, if this doesn't stop, we're going to put tariffs on your steel and aluminum exports to the United States. That will get their attention. Mm. Ambassador, uh, Senators Marco Rubio, Bob Melendez and others uh, led a bipartisan effort to halt American military aid to Azerbaijan. Does this administration have the will to hold Azerbaijan accountable? If they don't, they should. And if they if they allow this strangling, this slow strangulation to take place of the Christians in Nagorno-Karabakh, It's going to tell other dictators, this is how you do it. You do it slowly. You do it kind of quietly. You do it trying in the the backdrops. You keep the reporters out, and that's how you can get rid of these religious minorities. If they don't have the will at this time, you're going to see a bunch more of these happen. Given what you have seen, could there be a second genocide here, similar to what we saw in World War I down the road? Unfortunately, yes. And it's almost always of religious minorities that ha- that where genocides happen. That's who they happen to. They happen to the Jews in World War II. But before them were the Armenians. And Hitler even took some inspiration from saying, who cares about the Armenians after there was a million Christian Armenians in a genocide? And then he conducts his own ghastly genocide. Hmm. Before we go, I, I want to get your take on religious freedom in China. The Pope is elevating Bishop Stephen Chow of Hong Kong to cardinal. Uh, He's confirming the appointment of the Bishop of Shanghai. Both men are uh, Communist Party loyalists, and the second man was appointed with no uh, informing of the Vatican. Chinese government did it on their own. What message is the Vatican sending to Chinese Catholics and Catholics around the world with this kind of acquiescence? I'm afraid they're sending a message that they can be cajoled, pushed around uh, by a communist party. I mean, look what's happened to Cardinal Zen in Hong Kong, where he's been criminally charged. I mean, this is that's who we should be fighting for, not elevating who the Chinese Communist Party says should be brought forward. There seems to be a, a distaste for martyrdom these days. Nobody wants to stand up. Everybody wants to get along. But worse, not only get along follow the lead of this murderous regime in China. It's just, it's mind-boggling to me. Uh, We will leave it there. Ambassador Brown, back as always, I thank you for your time. Hope you'll come back soon. Thanks, Raymond. The movie The Sound of Freedom has really shocked Hollywood. Uh, This thriller, which nobody saw coming, is now in its second week of release. The movie's made over $85 million at the box office and is headed for $100 million before this week is out. It beat Indiana Jones on its first day of release, and it's gone toe-to-toe with Tom Cruise's Mission Impossible. Now, Sound of Freedom is based on the true story of former federal agent Tim Ballard, whom you'll meet in a moment. 
He embarks on a treacherous mission in the movie, anyway, to rescue children from sex traffickers in South America. I sat down recently with actor Jim Caviezel, who plays Mr. Ballard in the movie, to talk about how he prepared for the role and what made him take on such a difficult source material. Here's my exclusive interview with Jim Caviezel. It is the fastest growing international crime network that the world has ever seen. It has already passed the illegal arms trade, and soon it's going to pass the drug trade. Because you can sell a bag of cocaine one time with a child five to ten times a day. God's children are not for sale. I want to start, Jim, with why Tim Ballard was so intent that you should play him. Tim saw the Count of Monte Cristo, mm -hmm. and he saw the Passion of the Christ. And initially, Eduardo and uh, Alejandro felt that I wasn't the, you know, Tim as far as the complete makeup of him. But he goes, no, but what's in his heart is, is what I want. How did you first become aware of his work? Um, well, first through my adoption of my children. Um, and I became very aware of the dangers of um, what goes on uh, around the world, the children. And um, he, um, you know, I, a lot of the agents I worked with over time had mentioned and talked about trafficking and how really bad this actually is. And, and, um, and then um, that's how... It, his name came up and how I, but it was meeting him that I went, okay, uh -huh. we can do something here. You accompanied him on one of these Underground Railroad missions. A tribe. What was that like? What did you learn there? I didn't actually get to go because I prepared for it. Uh -huh. we, they flew me into Salt Lake several, many, many times as I was preparing, mm -hmm. and I was with one of their uh, key snipers. I was, uh, we did... Um, they brought me into the, um, they have a, a simulated room where, like police officers use yeah. in military to, for training. Then we did actual uh, CQC training with uh, live rounds and everything. And then I was in uh, his war room several times um, watching the mission and, and <clears throat> sat through satellite feeds, um, watched what they were doing and preparing for what was going to happen. Then I, you know, just write notes down. Um, what What are you looking for in this situation? You know, mm -hmm. and um, and then um, when we got ready to go, he goes, uh, "You can't go. It's too dangerous. This one's a bad one." They, and, they didn't feel comfortable having no, you. No, not right when they they could lose their lead, possibly or wounded going into this one particular mission. Carrie didn't want you, your wife, didn't want you shooting in Colombia. But you did shoot she in She wanted me to do the film. Yeah, but it not It was just going down there. Yeah. Maybe. I mean, it's a beautiful San country. Diego Don't get me wrong. Would yeah. have been a better alternative. Right. But you go to Colombia. You all flew in, like, on a prop plane to get to Cartagena. Uh, no, that was more like Santa Marta. Okay. Maybe Santa Marta, that one. But then, then we went into the Medellin area. And then that was kind of And what did you hairy. see there? This was a very different, I mean, this was actually, yeah. actually an area held by the cartel. So when they're coming up to you and talking to you, um, Alejandro noticed it first. Nor normally when the guys are coming up and trying to sell you something, they'll say, do you want cigarillos and mm -hmm. whatnot? And they'll say, you know, do you want mujeres, women? Um, this is the first time they were like, do you want mujeres? And then they go, do you want niñas, niños, little boys, little girls? Mm. So that's kind of 
different world, but we're the biggest consumers of it here in the United States of America. $152 billion a that's year correct. industry. You give me an idea how big that is, Raymond. That's every sports team, professional sports team in the United States, still not $152 billion. Then add on World Cup soccer, you know, all the big Real Madrid, still not enough. All of those as well. And then add on every 18-year-old in the United States going to Stanford University for four years, every 18-year-old. And that, now you're talking $152 billion. Mm. I, I want to backtrack a moment. You talked about Tim Ballard seeing you in Count of Monte Cristo and the Passion of the Christ. Before we get to Sound of Freedom, I want to ask you what you've learned from some of these iconic actors, directors you've worked with over the, your career. Let's start with Richard Harris, who was uh, your, your co-star yeah. in The Count of Monte Cristo. Yeah. I think it was his, almost his last movie, second to last, if second not last, last, right? Yes. What did you learn from Richard Harris? You know, I've never told anybody this before, but I looked at his script, and it had his notes, and he was... He would like write around the subject, circle the subject, and then he would follow it, and then he would underline the verb, and then he would carry it over to the direct object. This is how he connected it. Along the way, I worked with some phenomenal pros, so I started thinking thoughts, and I said, "Well, I bet you that's what Richard was doing back there." Connecting the ideas I, and the logic. I underline the, all of my mm, stuff now. Sly Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger, who you worked with in Escape Plan. What did you learn from these two really icons of yeah. action and something you've done a bit of? They train extremely hard in their athleticism, mm -hmm. as I did when I was coming up. They train even later in their lives continually, and they train as hard, and they put all that hard training into the work that they do. Mm -hmm. um, I had a scene with... Um, Arnold, where they shoved a giant pipe down his throat, and he's that's going further. We have to go and further. And he, the way he would control it, like the governor, who would do that scene. And it was very, very, very physical. Um, and no complaints, no complaining, no whining. Stallone. We were down in the brig in a fight scene, and they've got all this steel and stuff, and he's like, boom, boom, and he grabs, and he's cut, and probably had to get stitches, and he just like, get going. It was rocky, you know? It, and um, and that, that toughness is what I loved mm -hmm. about both of them. They were very, very tough. Well, and this last person is certainly not tough at all on any level. Mel Gibson, what did you learn from working with Mel? He has all the dimensions, right? He has um, the ability to lead. He's incredibly athletic. Mm -hmm. He's a genius actor. I mean, the guy, Shakespeare, you watch Hamlet, and mm -hmm. tell you everything. Um, he, if you watch the opening scene of um, Lethal Weapon, mm. we'll tell you everything. Mel took it to another le level in the opening scene when he, you see him uh, opening scene of Lethal Weapon, he puts that gun to his mouth and you see the tears come out. The level of depth that this guy can, can go is extraordinary. Plus, he's the greatest director I've ever yeah. worked for. He's yeah. a filmmaker. 
I want to get back to Sound of Freedom sure. now because all of these skills, everything you've just told me from each of these men, you really end up utilizing mm -hmm. in this part. When you got the script, what did you think of the role itself and how did you prepare for that? Um, well, you have a battled war hero story, you know. You have the innocence of Tim Ballard. Um, he's like a childlike quality that um, Jesus talks about. I linked into that. I always wanted to do the movie Taken. When I saw that, I said, God, I wish I was available when that happened. Or It was a brilliant film. Yeah. Well, this was a Taken with a much bigger heart. Mm. Much, much bigger. And um, uh, it, it, I, I, you know, when you and I talked about it, I, I think what people get turned off by is they hear all these stories about the trafficking of it, mm -hmm. and that, but you learn something about it. Yeah. So a mother and father should be able to protect their kids. They should want to protect their kids. And people what don't the realize 100,000 children are abducted and, and trafficked in the United States. Forget other countries. No, That's over, just in no, the no, United no. States. 300,000. That high. 300,000 are abducted or lured into okay. the sex trade a year. Ms. Rojas, okay, um, she, on April 26, she was giving sworn testimony, right, in right. front of the uh, um, House Committee. Right. And um, she admitted uh, sworn testimony that 85,000 children have gone missing that have crossed the border. Mm -hmm. So it's hitting, it, it, it's not a funny thing, this, this, what's going on right now where we have open borders. Why are you letting these killed kids be taken like this? And they've disappeared. 85,000 children disappeared. That's almost the entire Rose Bowl Stadium. Yeah, and these are the children that were taken into U.S. custody, released into the mainland, and then the government oh, yeah. does not know their whereabouts. That's correct. In the movie, we see Tim Ballard. He rescues a boy, and this boy's sister is still being held and used. Mm -hmm. She is in the possession of a cartel mm -hmm. and the boss of that cartel. Is there some kind of problem, officer? Oh yeah, that uh, that's a old picture. You know how kids are these days; they, they just grow up so fast. That's him. No, no, no! I, I'm his uncle. Off, put your hands on the wheel. No, I'm, I'm, I'm his uncle. You just ask him. Just ask him. I'm his uncle. Is that reality? Is that a true story? Is this based on a true story? It's like the Count of Monte Cristo where you have 1,200 pages and I got to eliminate characters. I got to get them all down to 14. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, so is it page by page? No. I think it would be a big mistake if people went and said, oh, okay, this is not page for page perfect and you're going to see things you don't want to see and understand why we couldn't put them in there. Yeah. It's far worse than you can imagine. Yeah. 
let's face it, you this can't. is explosive, horrible uh, no. visuals. And the way that's delicately done, where you can imagine it but you don't see it, is really brilliant. And opens it up, I think, to a, yeah. a wider audience than had you gotten very explicit with the material. But the, my purpose would be for a mother to sit there and say, oh, I just don't want to see that film. Well, you know, if this gets to your backyard... And it is getting to your backyard, and it is in many people's backyards. And if you go to over 300,000 children a year mm. are taken, aren't you responsible at some point to at least learn what to do? How, where are they? How do, and you learn that in the film. So it's, it's a brilliant thing, uh, weapon for that parent to go, okay, that guy doesn't belong here. Who is that guy? And what's going on over here? My daughter's not going over there. Mm -hmm. It you know, would be like driving it to a gas station. Yeah. If people would just look at the lighting, they would go, oh, you know what? This is, I, I might want to drive another block or two. This well, is not a good Tim, place. Tim always tells the story of Harriet Beecher Stowe, mm. who wrote about what was happening in slavery yes. and kind of awakened the conscience of the country long before there was a civil war or Lincoln came around. That's correct. Is that what your intention here is with The Sound of Freedom yes. and Eduardo's and Alejandro's? Is it to sensitize and awaken the conscience of a country and the world? Oh, absolutely. Well, we went, we're going for the whole thing. Uh, we're doing this two million uh, tickets that, that we're working with Angel right now. We're going to sell two million tickets uh, for two million children that are being trafficked right now. Mm -hmm. Send Washington and all these governments a message that children are no longer for sale. God's children are no longer for sale. Which is a line from the movie. That's that correct. Says. I know your wife was worried about your shooting in Columbia. Tim Ballard and his comrades, they're chasing down some of the most evil people on the planet who mean to and traffic in children. Mm. This is not, on its face, a happy, sweet subject. No. Was there any hesitation from you as a person, as an actor? No, not. When Why not? Because the script was too good. And if you've seen Alejandro Monteverde as a filmmaker, so those two things. And, um, you know, frankly, my world changed after The Passion. So this could end up being one of the biggest films I've done. And hmm. they're selling like hotcakes right now. But what I have to tell your viewers is we only have 2,100 screens where... Uh, Disney's film has got 4,500 screens. Well, you're up to 3,000 screens today. Oh, wow. So you're up to 3,000 hey, screens big. now. Wow, I'm in a good mood now. Yeah, but tell people what you want them to do. Because this is a... Angel Studios works differently than other studios. Yes. Well, they have a pay-it-forward pay program. They give tickets away for free. Hmm. You know, they know that people have... Uh, have been down on their luck, have, you know, are unemployed. What's going on in the United States has affected a lot of people, so they can't afford it. Well, so, you know, you will be in the future, but right now, go to the film, go through the program. It's easy. And w what benefit we get? Tell everybody you loved it. Mm. That is one of the best, mm -hmm. you know, th you, ideas I, I've, I've ever heard of. In film, we, studios would never do this. And you've said this is the second most important film of your career. Hmm. Passion. The passion being your first. There's no question. Is the resurrection coming? Yes. How soon? So I went up to him and I asked him that. I said, are we going to be ready? No. Yes. I said, uh, we'll be, will we be ready to go by January? And he said, 
yeah, maybe. And I said, uh, end of the fall? Yeah, maybe. And I said, September? Yeah, maybe. And so now you go, so I, my mind, you'd think I would say, okay, it'll be January. I'd asked him the same kind of thing when we did the Passion. Mm-hmm. It was uh, in August, it was August 15th, that he said, okay, green means go on August 15th. Mm-hmm. That was amazing because all of the Marian feast days, we just kept running into them on that film. Mm. You know, I like to, I know that she was making that film for her son. What is your prayer for your audience who sees Sound of Freedom? What do you want them to do in the aftermath of seeing this movie? I want you to not just think about trafficking. We have to think about grooming. We have to think about that mm-hmm. if you cut an arm off of, of an octopus and say it's trafficking, what happens? It grows right back, doesn't it? So you've got to take the head out. We have to come together with all the churches in the world, all Christian churches, and unite and take back our children and our republic. It all goes hand in hand. We've got to come together, save our children, and it'll go hand to hand with our republic. And we've got to get rid of pornography. That's one of the big ones. You just drive all of the country. All you're doing is creating more pedophiles. The Passion of the Christ was a film that opened my heart, my eyes, gave everything for it. I gave everything for this one. It took two years to, to uh, sleep decently. I couldn't sleep because mm. of this. Mm. And so what I'm excited about is that finally the world is going to start moving in that direction. Mm. Is there a sequel plan? There's a script already. They've really? already done a budget on it, but it, obviously it's based on the success of this film. And it's not a two. It's just the next chapter. Mm. This mission goes from Colombia to Haiti. Mm. And this one is even better than the first script. Sound of Freedom starring Jim Caviezel is still in theaters nationwide. It's now getting rolled out in South America and soon Europe. Check your local listings or you can go to angelstudios.com. Russia's war in the Ukraine has created one of the largest humanitarian crises in Europe since World War II. Millions of people have been displaced, and estimated 90% of them are women and children. The horrific multi-billion dollar human trafficking industry has skyrocketed as a result. In June of 2022, I sat down with former federal agent and founder of Operation Underground Railroad, on whose story the blockbuster movie Sound of Freedom is based. Here is an encore of my exclusive interview with Tim Ballard. Tim, thanks for being with us. According to reports from the Ukrainian government, more than 250,000 children have been deported to Russian territories. How vulnerable are these children to human and sex trafficking? You were just there. They're, they're, yeah, uh, yeah, they're extremely vulnerable. You know, anytime there's a crisis like this, whether it's a war, an earthquake, a hurricane, anytime there's chaos, that is harvest time for human traffickers. This is $150 billion a year business. So it's not some peripheral thing that we can just dismiss. They love this. They feed off of this because you have displaced people. You have kids who whose parents are, are, are dead or dying and they just come in like the savior. Hey, come on, get my car. I'll take you to France. I'll take you to Holland. Wow. I'll take you wherever. And, and, and they just can make millions of dollars over, over the you know years in selling these children and women into the sex markets. 
How do these traffickers target these, these children and the women? So oftentimes they will connect with, uh, with locals who are already, see Ukraine's a place where there's already um, quite a sex market that's existed for, for decades. Uh, you can go, wow. I, I know this because our teams have been there, you can go anywhere in Latin America or Central America, uh, all, all throughout the world really, and you'll find Eastern European uh, girls being, being sold. So there's already, all, these routes mm. already exist. And so when, when, the, when, the, uh, when the war broke out and there's more chaos, those routes are then activated. Other people join on. And so it's a lot of the local people who are already in that business. Now they are connecting and finding more people to then move and, and sell. Mm. Your organization, Operation Underground Railroad, has been working in Ukraine to extract women, especially children, from these human and sex traffickers. How do you find these traffickers, Tim? And what happens to the victims once you remove them from harm? So, yeah, our our work in Ukraine began um, shortly after the invasion. We partnered with uh, an amazing group called Aerial Recovery Group and and others, uh, where we were actually working hand in hand with the government of Ukraine, they would give us, um, they gave us names of missing children, uh, kid, kids who might be vulnerable wow. to human traffickers, uh, kids who might just be in an orphanage where they're in a, a bombed out zone and no one knows uh, what their fate might be. So our guys would go in literally doing multiple operations in a week, uh, going into, even while missiles are flying, uh, going in and extracting these children uh, sometimes we'd get there and they weren't there. So where did they go? Uh, and so we started to get more proactive working with um, the, the police forces who work in anti-trafficking in Ukraine. And, um, you know, we've extracted about 3,000 uh, women and children already that we did identify and got them into safe houses, most in Western Ukraine, um, some um, in, in Poland and other places. Uh, and that mission continues. We've now kind of gone into phase two where we, are building teams, um, working with uh, the Ukrainian government and and other governments as well, uh, where we can kind of put on a full a full court press internationally. And when we are called upon by these governments, we have teams that speak Ukrainian and are trained in undercover operations, where we can now go and infiltrate and find out where they're going. We might find kids in in the Caribbean, women in in Colombia, and that's what we're that's the phase we're in right now, and already with some success. Jim, uh- Yeah, as you alluded to, this is an international problem, and I know you've been doing this for several years, um, sex trafficking, uh, breaking up these sex traffickers and their networks. Last week in Mexico, your organization took part in bringing down a man from the Netherlands. His name is Nelson Matman. Uh, Tell us who Matman is and how you learned about his whereabouts. I know you worked with a group from the Netherlands, Free a Girl Association, as well as Mexico City Authorities. So, so Nelson Matman, he's, he's, he's especially a dangerous kind of pedophile. People like him. He's open. He's, he's a public uh, figure trying to be and, and actually has established uh, a political party that was actually shut down by the Netherlands, but still functioning in, in different ways. A, a political party that's trying to make, make sex with children legal. Um, also, sex with animals and, and dead people is a part of his, their, their platform. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's quite a following. And so they were actually in 2020, he was he was arrested for crimes against children, along with some of his kind of lieutenants, and they disappeared. So they were they were they were gone for a couple of years. No one really knew where they were. Um, And while we were uh, out in Eastern Europe, kind of putting together these teams that could assist governments 
uh, when called upon, uh, we got a lead from a very credible source saying we found him. And not only did we find him, and, and this, per- this particular person knew that we were building this team of Ukrainian speakers, he said not only did we find him, he's in Mexico City, but he has alluded to, or there's, there's some um, information that he is looking to or is involved in the sex trade, uh, child exploitation, and, and may be interested or involved in even the Ukrainian sex trade. And so the, it was really providential. The timing was insane because it was just we have this team ready to go. Um, and so hmm. they then opened up some of these kind of uh, underground networks, and we were able to track them working with Fria Girl and identify the location, provide that information to the Mexican authorities, and then working with them on, on June 6th, we were able to kind of you know lure him out uh, following all the rules and, and laws of the Mexican authorities who ran the investigation, but they were able to kind of lure him wow. out of his rat hole and 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 they were able to arrest him and uh, and already are having great success they found multiple i think two or three terabytes of potential child exploitation uh, material i want to talk about how you found that digital material operation underground railroad you flew your own canine in uh to help search motman's apartment how did uh is it he do is that the name of your dog he a national hero in mexico i've seen stories all over about him uh, so we've been working with canines for quite some time. We we um, we work with uh, a group called uh, Jordan Canine Detection up in Indianapolis, and we uh, we sponsor these dogs. And these dogs, just like bomb sniffing dogs or like drug sniffing dogs, these mm-hmm. dogs can sniff out digital media. Uh, and this is where child pornographers mm-hmm. often will put their you know the, the images and the, these horrific uh, crime scene really uh, videos mm-hmm. uh, that they use for their enjoyment. Um, also is sometimes the only lead that exists that a child might be in danger and where they might be. So these dogs, we've deployed uh, multiple dogs, a couple dozen uh, at least, uh, throughout the United States to law enforcement agencies. He does one of the dogs that we've also deployed and trained, but we kept him as our own so that we can deploy him um, when called upon internationally. There's not He's the first dog that we know of that's actually gone international. Um, and so the Mexicans mm-hmm. asked if we could bring Hidu down. Uh, this this guy was famous for um, and admitted that he hides his stuff. Uh, he'll hide a little micro SD card in a lampshade or in a carpet or, you know, somewhere mm. where it's almost impossible for a human to detect. And there, there's a little kind right. of uh, adhesive, su- like a glue substance in every microchip. And, and that's what the dog's trained to sniff on and detect. So he do goes wow. into this place and he finds three or four hidden devices um, that that allegedly do contain child exploitation material and, and the Mexicans are now working mm. on that um, forensic examination, but, it, but without he do, you know, it, it wouldn't have been possible to find, uh, find mm. all of the, the evidence. Now, Tim, how does your organization work with other local authorities, other similar organizations to share intelligence in order to apprehend somebody like Motman? I mean, how dependent are you for uh, reliable on the ground intelligence to apprehend these traffickers? So we have amazing intel folks who are former uh, former U.S. law enforcement, former Australian law enforcement, military. And so we, we're able to get a lot of open source information and, and, and connect the dots. Where we're kind of experts in is we have relationships. So this case goes from, you know, from Ukraine to, to the Netherlands, to Budapest, to Mexico. And, and, and we're talking to everybody. And so we can help coordinate and make sure governments have the information they need and they're communicating 
We don't have authority. We don't have arrest authority or prosecution authority. Right. Uh, but we provide intel, information, and and our, we build bridges between governments so that they're talking fluidly and they're able to respond. And then we have resources that some governments may not have, like a canine detection dog or, you know, a grant to cover, you know, whatever cost might be needed, like a translator, for example, uh, who speaks Russian and Dutch uh, that was needed immediately. And we were able to supply that. Tim, according to the Department of State, it is uh, estimated that there are approximately 25 million human trafficking and sex trafficking victims worldwide at any given time. How difficult is it for local authorities uh, to keep up with the human and sex trafficking? And are they even concerned about it? Seems to me we're worried about a lot of other crimes. This is one that gets totally ignored. And yet the victims here are so terribly damaged and destroyed in many cases by it. Yeah, it's something, Raymond, I can't understand why why so many media outlets want to ignore it, even, even deny it. I mean, we've seen articles where they're trying to deny it. Um, I think... Um, mm. We're seeing something happen in this culture, in the United States, especially where you're you're desensitizing children. I mean, we're we're sexualizing children and making it okay. So you know, mm. people look at someone like Matt Men, like, oh, he's some rogue, you know, pariah. Not not really. He he seems to be just like five or six years ahead of of a culture that's that's frightening and catching up mm. to him uh, because they're promoting the well, same. Well, the most ideas, interesting you thing know? you mentioned. Yeah, the most interesting thing you mentioned, Tim, is that he's actually, uh, before he was uh, arrested in his home country, he was pushing politically to uh, normalize the sexual exploitation of children and sex with children. Correct. Correct. And and the, what we're identifying is these trends, like I said, it's, it's, it's frightening, you know, uh, where uh, he, he's saying some of the same things that we're seeing almost in the mainstream so that, that's what makes this guy, yeah. uh, this guy Mattman and his and his uh, lieutenants not as not not so pariah and, and like people just dismiss him. No, he, he's re, he's a reflection of of where we're heading if yeah. we don't stop this. And so I think that's why no, we're not talking much about it. Correct. And and some of the some of the articles that have come out, um, mostly godless kind of leftist tabloidish kind of stuff, but. They'll put out these articles and they're attacking us or attacking other organizations, claiming there's not really human trafficking. And then it's followed up by some article about how pedophilia it, it shouldn't be demonized. And let's not call them pedophiles. Let's call them minor attracted persons. MAP, that's the new you know, acronym that mm-hmm. we're, we're going to see coming out here. Um, and it's, it's very frightening because our children are being exposed. They're very vulnerable. And the people that should be protecting them are actually putting them in harm's way. Uh, A new study out last week from the University of South Australia, their anti-trafficking researchers there suggest that common myths around human trafficking in Australia and around the world are simply not true. They include the perception that offenders are exclusively male, foreigners, unknown to their victims, and that they use physical force to control them. The study found that, quote, of 25 people, 25, convicted of human trafficking in Australia in 2021, 14 were men, 11 were women. Some of those female offenders were leaders, some were former victims, and some were in relationships with the male co-offenders. In your work, have you seen women involved in the trafficking trade? Are they harder to catch because people don't expect to see a woman trafficker? Almost every organization that we have attacked and taken down involves a woman in a very prominent place. 
um, that children respond to, to women more naturally. And so trafficking organizations mm. will utilize women who are, who are the face to the children, um, oftentimes the face to the, to the predator consumer. Uh, and, and so, yeah, the ones that are closer to the kids almost always, sometimes we call them groomers. You know, they will take the kids, get them ready for the party, the sex party, um, you know, lure them in, recruit them. So absolutely, women are, are very much a part of, of the human trafficking. Insidious. The study also claimed that uh, the myth that trafficking is rooted in foreign cultures and international travel is perpetuated through American films and popular culture. However, a report published by the U.N. Office on Drugs and Crime in 2020 found that 74 percent of convicted traffickers were citizens of the country where the offenses took place. Does that square with your experience, Jim? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. The most of the human trafficking rings that exploit children, they are centralized. They're localized. Most of the clients truly wow. are from that country. Um, now, that said, I'll, I'll tell you that the United States, we are the not, we are the uh, generally the highest consumer of child exploitation material, uh, child rape videos. And so uh, oftentimes governments will ask our operators to go undercover pretending to be sex tourists because we are, unfortunately, mm. this is the face that... Oftentimes, the Western face is what foreign uh, traffickers love to service. One of the Mm -hmm. most important things is that people want to see it like the movie Taken, where it's some cold rip, cold kidnap. And that does happen, but the vast majority of the time, it doesn't look like that. It's a lure. It it looks normal in some ways. It looks like the victim wants, they've been trained and groomed to to look like they want it, to look like they're they're willfully doing it, when in fact, just because you don't see the Mm -hmm. chains, the chains are in fact there. And so that's an important piece wow. if we're going to combat this to understand what it looks like. Uh, Tim, just this week, two people were indicted in a U.S. interstate sex trafficking ring that spanned uh, Nevada to Mississippi and, and ran from April to June of 2020. Do you find that most people don't think about sex trafficking as something that happens in their own backyard, particularly in some of the states I just mentioned? Oh, absolutely. And that's the problem. Everyone, they want to say, oh, that's that's in a faraway place. That's in some some, you know, backwater mm-hmm. city or country. Right. Uh, when in fact, you know, we, we just I just produced it, helped produce a documentary called It's Happening Right Here. It's, we're just putting it out. Mm. It's all about just how it domestically how this works. You know, trafficking, like we say, has different faces in different places, but it, it is happening everywhere. Um, and, you know, even in affluent areas, affluent neighborhoods where, where this is a very common thing where a, a 13, 14 year old girl has, has is in a relationship. She allows sex videos to be made. And then she's, you know, her boyfriend breaks up with her and then he's got her. He uses this footage and says, look, I got your entire church congregation. I got your pastor's email. I got your grandma's email. I'm going to show this video, these naked pictures or videos of you, unless you continue to service me and my friends and I mean, this is happening all the time in affluent areas and in places you wouldn't expect. It's trafficking. Mm. I mean, it is in every way uh, trafficking and and it leads to suicide and it leads to just horrific things. According to reports, the topic of human and sex trafficking was not addressed at last week's Summit of the Americas, which was hosted by the United States, many Latin and South American countries partaking in Los Angeles. Now, given the scores of migrants that are crossing the southern border each day, should the Biden administration have addressed that issue at the summit? And why didn't they? Oh, absolutely. I mean, how how do you not? Again, this is this is a hundred and fifty billion dollar year business. Uh, the United States, according to wow. the State Department, is in the top three 
for destination countries for human trafficking precisely because at least one reason is that we are the, one of the highest consumers of, of child exploitation material. Um, this should be the number one thing on the agenda. It's hurting children. It's transnational. It is something that should have been the first topic of discussion. Um, and and yep. somehow it is not. And I think it's become politicized in ways. I used to always love to say the last issue on the table that left, right, I don't care your ideology. I don't care your, your, your creed or religion is that children should not be hurt. Children should not be sexually exploited. Um, I can't say that anymore. It, it has become politicized. The Atlantic did a hit piece on, on, on OUR and really every organization. Um, called, it was called the Great Fake Child Sex Epidemic. Absolute, just full of misinformation, um, basically saying it's all fake. Wow. No, I, well, I can tell you from being down at the border, talking to border agents, embedding with uh, border agents along that border, they will tell you the number of people that are human trafficked, that they, they're distracted processing migrants that the coyotes are moving, while upriver, they're human trafficking and weapons trafficking uh, uh, under the gaze of the United States, and nothing is done about it. It's outrageous. And we talk about human dignity. If we truly cared about the human dignity of those migrants, we'd make sure that border was safe and therefore not so porous. Uh, Republican U.S. Congressman Chris Smith of New Jersey is proposing bipartisan legislation along with uh, Representative Karen Bass. She's a Democrat from California uh, to aid survivors of human trafficking. The legislation would provide roughly a billion dollars over five years to strengthen and expand education and restorative care, other critical programs that protect victims and prosecute uh, those in need of prosecution. How important is this bill and will it change anything? It is super important. Chris Smith is always leading out on every important bill. He did, he did the international Megan's law, uh, which was important mm-hmm. for, for um, binational communication, reporting on the travel of, of, of human uh, or child sex abusers. So yeah, the, the big supporters of, of this bill, uh, the aftercare site is the piece that probably is the most important piece. Uh, we don't have enough even aftercare homes in this country to take care of our own trafficking problem, uh, let alone, let alone you know, the, the other countries that are struggling. And so it's, it's a very important bill. Um, I hope, I wish they would address more to what you were talking about, the border. Um, like you said, if I can just go back to that, because it's such an important issue yeah. uh, where if, if we have this current policy that if, a, if, a, if an adult shows up at the, at the border, an illegal uh, undocumented migrant with a child in hand, that child, that family, and that person must be released immediately uh, within, or within the family hours unit. or something. Correct. And these border agents will tell mm-hmm. you, like, you know, all these, you know, the whole kids in cages thing. Like, those are the ones they identified as, hey, you don't belong to this family. Those are the kids that got saved. Right. And they're not cages, as you know, right? Um, but, yeah. and so it's all, it's all turned on its head. Like, and, and the reality is, is completely distorted of what's happening. Border agents have pointed out to me that, that there are children they recognize returning into the country again Correct. and who are basically, they come in with a group of people. They're used to make the family unit appear to be a family. Uh, once everybody's in the country, those kids are then flown back to the native country and used again to take a different group over the border. So kids are being used as fast passes uh, into the United States and abused along the way. That is a horrible stain on us as a country. And, it gets, and um, we have correct. to do something about it. It's also, and it, and it gets worse than that, too, when you look at the DHS stats that show 
hundreds or sometimes thousands of unaccompanied minors in the category of like one to five years old. How did that happen? That is all the time we have for now. Be sure to catch us next week. Until then, we'll be scouting the world over for all that is seen and unseen. On behalf of the staff and crew of EWTN News, I'm Raymond Arroyo. Bye now.